Please turn in your Bibles with me to Joshua chapter 3. We're continuing our summer sermon series through the book of Joshua. And this morning we will be looking at the entirety of chapter 3. Please give your attention to God's word. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and they set out from Shittim. And they came to the Jordan, he and all the people of Israel, and lodged there before they passed over. At the end of three days, the officers went through the camp and commanded the people, As soon as you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God being carried by the Levitical priests, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. Yet there shall be a distance between you and it about 2,000 cubits in length. Do not come near it, in order that you may know the way you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. Then Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. And Joshua said to the priests, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass on before the people. So they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went before the people. The Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. And as for you, command the priests who bear the Ark of the Covenant, when you come to the brink of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. And Joshua said to the people of Israel, Come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, Here is how you shall know that the living God is among you. And that he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing over before you into the Jordan. Now therefore take twelve men from the tribes of Israel, from each tribe a man. And when the soles of the feet of the priests bearing the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing, and the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap. So when the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan with the priests bearing the ark of the covenant before the people, and as soon as those bearing the ark had come as far as the Jordan, And the feet of the priests bearing the ark were dipped in the brink of the water. Now the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of harvest. The waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away. At Adam, the city that is beside Zarethan, and those flowing down towards the Sea of the Arabah, the Salt Sea, were completely cut off. And the people passed over opposite Jericho. Now the priest bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan, and all Israel was passing over on dry ground until all the nation finished passing over the Jordan. Since I've moved to State College a little over five years ago, I have realized that there aren't really four seasons in a year. There's actually only three. Football season, second semester, and road construction season. (laughs) Every year, as soon as graduation is over over at Penn State, 
The guys in the hard hats and the fluorescent yellow vests descend upon us like a swarm of locusts. And they rip up our roads and they scramble to try to get them put back in place before the students get here in the fall. But as frustrating as all the road and building construction around here is, it is much to be preferred to living in a town that is dying. There's so much excitement about living in a town that is always growing and always improving in many different ways. But I've known the other side of the coin. I grew up in a very small town up in northwestern Pennsylvania. When I was there, my graduating class from a public high school, a public high school that drew students from half of Forest County, Pennsylvania, my public school class was 31 students. I went back there a few years ago to find that many of the classes have less than 10 students now. There is no business there, there's no corporations, there's no jobs, there's no money, there's no vision for the future, there's no hope for growth and improvement. Sadly, I've also known many churches that are like that. Churches that are declining, churches that are from all appearances dying. Harry Reeder is a pastor in the PCA and is somewhat of an expert in church revitalization. He's written a book on church revitalization called From Embers to a Flame. And in that book, he talks about three kinds of churches. First of all, he says there are monument churches. Monument churches are churches that used to be vibrant and growing and influential, but they've declined. And they've lost vision, they've lost people, they've lost hope for the future. And so now they spend their time looking backward, talking about the glory days of the ministry of their church. Because that's all they really have to be excited about. And then he also says there are maintenance churches. Those are churches that used to be vibrant and growing and influential, but they've reached a place where they've plateaued. And they are content, self-satisfied. They've become kind of an institution, and now it's all about maintaining what they have. And so a successful year is when they add as many new members as they lose out the back door, and a successful year is when they meet their budget. But then, thirdly, he says there are movement churches, churches that are still vibrant and growing and influential, churches that are going somewhere, that if you ask them to a person, they would say that the best days of this church are ahead of it. Well, that's what it's like for families of believers, for congregations of God's people, but it's also true for individuals. I would say that those same labels can apply to individual Christians. Some Christians are monument Christians. They rest on the laurels of their past service to Christ in the church, and they're content to just live out their days in comfort. And then there are maintenance Christians, Christians that really aren't growing anymore, they've plateaued and they're really just about maintaining where they are. And they're content where they are. But then there are also movement Christians, Christians that are on fire, Christians that are passionate for Christ, passionate for the church, Christians that have a vision for what God is calling them to and they're going there. 
Which kind are you? Are you a monument Christian? Are you a maintenance Christian? Are you a movement Christian? What kind of a church is Oakwood? Is Oakwood a monument church or a maintenance church or a movement church? It's an important question to ask yourselves on an ongoing basis. Because the Bible presents the Christian life, whether you're talking about the church or God's people as a whole, or whether you're talking about individual Christians, that the life of discipleship, either to, together or individually, is a journey. John Bunyan's great novel, Pilgrim's Progress, illustrated it so well, that we are called to go from where we are to where God is calling us to be, and none of us has arrived. We're to always be striving for new goals that the Lord sets before us. Never getting to a place where we say, I don't need to go any further. I've arrived. Our mission is never finished until Christ comes again or until we die and go to be with him. The Apostle Paul was undoubtedly more spiritually mature than any of us in this room as he wrote the scriptures. Listen to his perspective on his life as he shared it in Philippians chapter 3, beginning of verse 12, where he says, Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lives ahead, lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Does that characterize your life? Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. That's what discipleship should look like for a believer. Is Oakwood Presbyterian Church where God wants us to be? No. He has much more in store for us. He's calling us to much more in the future. Are you, as an individual Christian, where God wants you to be? Absolutely not. And so the important question to be asking ourselves on an ongoing basis is, how do we get from where we are to where God wants us to be? Not where the world wants you to be, where your parents want you to be, where your spouse wants you to be, where you want to be. We're talking about where does God want you to be? How do you get from here to there, since none of us has arrived? It's a little easier in some ways back in biblical times. They had God speaking to them, and God spoke to Abraham. And God said to Abraham, I want you to leave Haran, and I want you to go to the promised land. And I am 400 years in the future, I'm going to give this promised land to you and your family, to the nation that your family will become. And for generation after generation, they have known that that was God's calling upon them as a people. And so here we have Joshua, the newly anointed leader of the Israelites. And all of the Israelites that have come through the wilderness, ready to go in to possess their inheritance. The thing that had been promised to them, the place that had been promised to them, but more than the place, a place where God would dwell in their midst where they would represent the kingdom of God, where they would be a light on a hill to the nations of what it means to serve God, the one true God, and to point others to him. They were on the verge of this as they sat there in the town of Shittim, which was about six miles from the Jordan River. 
They had just gotten back good news about this mission. The spies that had been sent into the promised land on a reconnaissance mission had come back and they had encouraged Joshua and the Israelites by saying, yeah, yeah, those, those, fortified, those huge fortified cities and those giants in the land that scared off our fathers, they're all still there. That's the bad news. The good news is they're shaking in their boots. Or to quote them exactly, they are melting away in fear because they have heard what our God has done for us. They have heard about the enemies of God that have been defeated. They have heard about his great and wondrous works in Egypt and in the wilderness. And so it was time to enter in, to fulfill the mission. But there was a major, seemingly insurmountable obstacle in the way between them and the promised land. It was known as the Jordan River. Now, if you were to go to the Jordan River today, first of all, it's highly likely the Jordan River today does not look like it did back then. We don't know exactly what the dimensions and everything about there, but there's some things we know about it today that tell us a lot about what the Jordan River was like then. First of all, today, if you go to the Jordan River and look at it, especially if you've been to a river like the Mississippi, it's not going to impress you. In its normal state today, in that part of the Jordan River, probably about 100 feet wide and maybe about 10 feet deep. But that's not the whole story. First of all, it was probably bigger and wider then. But all that aside, that's not really the fearful thing about the Jordan River. The fearful thing about the Jordan River was the speed of the rapids. Because, to give you a little geography uh, reminder here, the Jordan River begins at Mount Hermon, which was to the north, if you, can, if you have a Bible map in front of you, if you remember what it looks like. You've got Mount Hermon, which was north of the Sea of Galilee, and the waters of the Jordan River began on the slopes of Mount Hermon. And so as those waters come down the slope, Mount Hermon is about 9,000 feet above sea level. That's the, the altitude of, of that mountain, about 9,000 feet above sea level. The waters go into the Sea of Galilee and then go through the deepest gorge on the face of our planet, of that, that river valley, very sharp cliffs and drop-offs leading all the way down to the lowest point on earth, which is, it's called here the Salt Sea, but we would call it the Dead Sea, 1,400 feet below sea level. So think about it. That water is going from Mount Hermon at, at 9,000 feet above sea level, ending up in the Dead Sea at 1,400 feet below sea level. It goes, that's why the, the, the gorge or the canyon that the river goes between the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea, that canyon, is, is cut with such sharp angles and sharp cliffs is because the river passed through there so rapidly. And especially down near the Dead Sea where Jericho was, those rapids were very, very fast, intimidatingly fast. But we have one more fact thrown into the text here. And it's thrown in as almost like an aside, but it's a very important thing to realize as you picture it. If you look at, uh, in uh, verse 13, it says that the river was at flood stage. The Jordan River, at the certain, particularly in the springs when the snows and the mountains would, would melt and the rains would come, it would flood. That whole valley would flood. And instead of being 100 feet wide or however wide it was at the time, it probably was somewhere between a half a mile and a mile wide at that point and deeper much deeper than usual, and the rapids going that much faster. 
So this is an imposing obstacle between where the Israelites were and where God had called them to be. Two spies would have had to have crossed that river, and they would have had to do that with great difficulty, and they, but they could do it with danger and difficulty. But think about it. The Israelites, hundreds of thousands of old men and old women and middle-aged men and middle-aged women and young men and young women and children, teenagers and children, hundreds of thousands, and all of their supplies and all of their livestock had to get across that river somehow. How in the world would it happen? The Lord says he's going to do a miracle. At first, that's all they know, is that the Lord speaks to Joshua and he says, I'm going to do a miracle. I'm going to do something amazing in your sight. And at this point, we can look at how God deals with his people here and learn about how God is dealing with his people here in State College. How God deals with you as an individual Christian. How do you get from where you are to where he wants you to be? Three stages in the process. The first stage is to prepare. Prepare yourself. Prepare your heart to see God do something in you and through you and for you. Prepare yourself. Preparation comes first. This is what we usually skip. First, Joshua, notice it points it out that they had to go. They left their encampment where they had been for a long time. They moved six miles. God, by God's instruction, they go to the edge of the Jordan River and they camp out again. He doesn't do anything for three days. For three days, they are sitting on the banks of the Jordan River at flood stage, looking into those muddy, churning, rapid water, contemplating the impossibility of their situation without any instruction. For three days, they have to look at that river and say, how is the Lord going to do this? I'm sure there were some among them who remembered what their fathers and grandfathers had told them about the Red Sea. I'm sure there were some saying, encouraging them to have faith that God can handle this. But they had to contemplate an impossible situation for three days. And then on the third day, Joshua tells them to get ready. Verse 5, consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. Consecrate yourselves. In other words, set yourself apart as holy unto the Lord. Prepare yourself spiritually for what God is about to do. He doesn't, Joshua doesn't say to them, I mean, think about it. They're about to take on people who are bigger, stronger, with better weapons and bigger fortifications. They're about to take on the Canaanites. And he doesn't tell them, sharpen your swords, make your armor stronger, Make sure you have all your provisions in place. That's not what he tells you. He says, consecrate yourselves. Set yourselves apart as holy unto the Lord. Prepare yourselves spiritually because God is going to do something mighty for you. There were outward rituals that they were to do. I mean, when, when the leader of Israel would say, consecrate yourselves, there are certain things that they would do, outward rituals, but they had spiritual meaning to them. They were outward representations of inward preparations. And so part of that was to wash their clothes, make their clothes absolutely clean. But of course, that spoke to their need to get on their knees before God, to confess their sins, to repent of their sins, to put away their sins in preparation for God to work in them and through them. To 
worship God, to pray to God, to, to read His Word, to study His Word. These were things that God's people in every age need to do in order to consecrate themselves so that God can do mighty things in them and for them and through them. What this teaches us today, something that we in our busy American lifestyle need to hear, is that forward movement in your life, in your service to Christ, forward movement doesn't mean continuous frenetic movement. Doesn't mean always being active. Doesn't mean plunging forward all the time. Sometimes and often it means before stepping forward you need to prepare yourself, to consecrate yourself, to spiritually prepare yourself for what God is calling you to do. I have learned over the course of my discipleship following Christ that there is a phrase in Scripture that has become very important to my service to Him. It's a phrase that you read often in the book of Psalms and you read it elsewhere as well. Wait upon the Lord. That often the Lord puts us in a situation where we can't do anything to move forward so that we will learn to wait upon the Lord. But waiting upon the Lord and consecrating yourselves go together. It means getting on your knees before God and confessing your sins. It means looking to God for grace, for forgiveness, for strength, for direction. It means resetting your focus, rebooting yourself spiritually, getting your priorities right by prayer and study of the word and worship and sacraments. Spiritual preparation before moving forward is essential. That's one reason that I always strongly advocate that people spend, that Christians spend time reading the word and in prayer at the beginning of your day. I can't point you to a scripture and verse that demands that all Christians read their Bible and pray and seek the Lord, confess sin and worship. I can't point to a scripture that demands that of every Christian. And I know some circumstances make that difficult. But if preparation for God to work in you and through you and for you is important, then I think spending time in spiritual preparation at the beginning of your day is important. Even if you're a quote-unquote morning person. I don't know where that, that's not, you can't point to chapter and verse on that one either. I'm, some, you know, some people are morning people, some people are evening people. Yeah, we all have our strengths and weaknesses, but preparation is important because when you start out in your day, the important thing is, are you prepared spiritually? Have, has your, your, your heart been prepared for God to work in you and for you and through you? And then secondly, once you've done that, once you've prepared, I think the people of Israel here in Joshua 3 show us what the next step is. Having prepared ourselves through confession and worship and prayer, the next step is to keep your focus on the person and power and presence of the Lord. Having set your focus up on him through preparation, you need to work hard to maintain your focus, to keep your focus upon the Lord as you consider moving forward. Did you notice how much the Ark of the Covenant factors into this story? The spotlight of this story is on the Ark of the Covenant. 
It's mentioned over and over and over again. It begins to be mentioned in verse 3. Matter of fact, this is the time, the first time the Ark of the Covenant is mentioned in the entire book of Joshua. There, Joshua says, as soon as you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God being carried by the Levitical priest, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. From that point on, in chapters 3 and 4, we'll be looking at the, the, the rest of the account in chapter 4 next week. In these two chapters, which cover the crossing of the Jordan River, the Ark of the Covenant is mentioned 17 times. It is the focus of the story. Not Joshua, not the Israelites, not the Canaanites. The focus is the Ark of the Covenant. And they are to keep their eyes set on the Ark of the Covenant. That's the instruction. Matter of fact, it's interesting. It says in the next verse, verse 4, says they're to keep 2,000 cubits between the people of Israel and the Ark of the Covenant as it moves forward. That's a, quite a distance. It's actually about a half a mile. And you would think that that, that, was, that instruction was given so that they would be, have a reverent attitude, recognizing the holiness of God, the transcendence of God. And I'm sure that's part of the, the reason. But the reason that's given for why they are to make sure that they stay that far behind the Ark of the Covenant, if you look at verse 4, the reason is that you may know the way you shall go. In other words, the Ark of the Covenant needs to be way out in front of the people so that all the people can see it. Not just the people in the front, but everybody can see it off in the distance so that they may know which way they should go. Keep your focus upon the Ark of the Covenant. Now, why the Ark of the Covenant? If you're not familiar with the Old Testament, the Ark of the Covenant was a gold box. And in that box were the tablets. The original tablets were the Ten Commandments were given to God's people. And on top of that box was what's called the mercy seat. And over the mercy seat, you had two golden angels with their wings touching over top of the mercy seat. And you need to understand that when we talk about the Ark of the Covenant in the Old Testament, it wasn't an idol like the, the idols of the nations. The people of Israel did not worship the Ark of the Covenant like the pagans worshipped idols. Neither was it some kind of a talisman that had some kind of magical supernatural power it was a sign it was a symbol and like any sign or symbol in scripture it taught truth to God's people about who God is and what he has done and so by containing the ten commandments you have a representation there of the holiness of God the righteousness of God the very will of God the standard of perfection that is required of anybody who's in a right relationship with God but if that was all that was in the Ark of the Covenant, if that's all the Ark of the Covenant that it was about, then it would be something that condemned God's people to eternal damnation. But we know that on top of the Ark of the Covenant was this mercy seat. And that mercy seat was the place where when the tabernacle was erected later in the temple, the high priest would go in one day a year on the Day of Atonement and he would take the blood of the sacrifice and he would sprinkle it on the mercy seat to show that a substitute had died in the place of the people. That the price of their sin, the guilt of their sin had been paid for. That sin had been atoned, it had been covered. And that because of God's grace and his provision of this blood sacrifice, this holy God who demands absolute perfect righteousness could be reconciled to a sinful people. Their sins could be forgiven, their guilt could be taken away. That's what, the, that's what 
the Ark of the Covenant represented. That was the sign that it was to God's people, a God of holiness and a God of mercy. This God who goes before them. Notice also in verse 11 that Joshua calls it, and he actually calls it this twice. He calls it the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of all the earth. And commentators make note of that because that's the only place that the Ark of the Covenant is called that. And I think there's reasons for that. There's a significance to the fact that Joshua calls the Ark of the Covenant the Ark of the Covenant of the God of the Lord of all the earth. You see, Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel, was not a tribal God. All the other peoples, especially the peoples of Canaan that they were about to go in and conquer, those people had tribal gods. They, each tribe, each nation had its own gods, matter of fact, multiple gods. But Israel served the true God, Yahweh, before whom all other gods are false. And so Yahweh, by, by Joshua saying this, he's saying Yahweh is the God over all these nations that you're about to defeat. The Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Jebusites. Yahweh is the God of all these nations, the sovereign God. That's why he is, this land belongs to Abraham and his descendants, and we're giving it to you. God is giving it to you because it belongs to him. He is the sovereign God. You see, the Canaanites, these Canaanite nations, they believed that their gods, and they, they served the Baal gods. The Baal gods were gods that control the different forces of nature that were beyond human control. And so these Baal gods, they worshiped these gods in hopes that they would, the Baal gods would keep these forces from destroying them. Well, can you imagine how these Baal worshipers would feel as they looked at the Jordan River, they would see these hundreds of thousands of Israelites on the other side, but they would look at the river and realize that the river was at flood stage. And they would be praising Baal. They would be having Revival services praising Baal because Baal is protecting them from the Israelites because the river was at flood stage. But little did they know that Yahweh, the God of all nations, had purposely timed this so that he would deliver his people through the flood as a statement. Just like he made a statement to the gods of the Egyptians. All the plagues were statements that showed that the gods of the Egyptians were false gods and that Yahweh was the true God. And here the Canaanites were about to learn the same thing. This is the same God that you serve. This is the God that you serve. He is the God of all nations, of all authorities, all earthly authorities. He is the God who is sovereign over all of them. And he is the Lord of heaven and earth. He is the Lord over angelic authorities. He is the Lord over the universe. So what obstacle can keep you from doing what he has called you to do? Like Peter walking on the waves of the Sea of Galilee, we sink or float in our discipleship depending on whether or not we keep our focus on the Lord. And so having prepared ourselves to move forward towards what God is calling us to, we need to keep our focus on the one who goes before us as we go. We are going to be tempted by Satan. We are going to be distracted by the pleasures and the rewards of this world. We are going to be struck with fear at the obstacles that are before us, whether they're uh, medical obstacles or financial obstacles or employment obstacles or relationship obstacles. We are going to be struck by fear. 
We are going to be discouraged by suffering in this world. We need to keep our focus upon the one who goes before us, who is sovereign over all things and all peoples. We set the focus upon the Lord by waiting upon him. And then we maintain that focus through the means of grace that he has given. Having started by going to the word and prayer and confession and sacraments and worship, having started there, we need to redouble efforts to commit to those as we move forward so that our focus stays upon the Lord. Let me give you this word of advice. I found this to be helpful in my own life. I've found it to be helpful to others that I've shared it with. Don't ever make an important decision in your life and don't take any important action in your life if you have not waited upon the Lord and set your focus upon him first. The biggest mistakes that I see brothers and sisters in Christ making all the time is that they make important decisions and take important actions when they are off track spiritually, when they are caught up in the things of the world, when they are enslaved by their sins, their head is not where it should be, their heart is not where it should be, and yet they're making decisions that are going to affect the course of their life. Don't ever make a decision or take any action if you've not waited upon the Lord and set your focus upon the Lord. It's crucial to moving forward in the right direction. The Israelites were not to take their eyes off the covenant, of the Ark of the Covenant. You must not take your eyes off of Christ. That brings us to the final lesson. Simply having waited upon the Lord, prepared your heart, set your focus upon the presence of the Lord in your midst, then step out in faith. In faith, step out. Verse 13, Joshua finally tells the people how the Lord is going to provide a way through this raging river. Listen to what he says. When the soles of the feet of the priests bearing the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing, and the waters coming down from above shall stand up in one heap. The Lord was going to stop the river 19 miles to the north, that's where they think the, the city of Adam was. 19 miles to the north, he was going to stop the river. Plenty of space for the hundreds of thousands of people and all their supplies and livestock to cross over. But you notice what had to happen first? <laughs> Talk about faith. Those priests, they are carrying the Ark of the Covenant. Remember when the Ark of the Covenant was on a cart and, and the, the, the oxen stumbled and the cart the ark was about ready to fall off and one of the well-meaning guys standing there tried to, to, to keep it from falling. He put his hand on it and he was struck dead. That's, that's the Ark of the Covenant just as a lesson, as a training point for the people of Israel. Well, think about that same Ark. These priests are going to be carrying it. Awesome responsibility to carry it. 2,000 cubits ahead of the other Israelites. And yet they had to step into the floodwaters first before the Lord would stop the river. Talk about a step of faith. They had to believe that God was true to his promise. God had said, I will stop the river, but they had to put their feet in the river first. And if God was not faithful to his promise, they would be lost. The Ark of the Covenant would be lost. 
It reminds me of the definition of faith that we're given in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, where it says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. You see, we do operate based on what we see. We make decisions every day of our lives based on what we know is in our bank account. We make decisions on getting into our car and driving down the road based on trusting our mechanics and the people who made our cars. We, we make decisions based on faith all day long. And most of those things, you know, we do see something. But sometimes walking by faith means stepping out before you know how God is going to provide. Sometimes God lets us see how he's going to provide in advance. Sometimes he says, step out before you know how I'm going to provide. Step out. I've promised something. You need to step out before you see it being fulfilled. One of the big things I've noticed, I've seen pictures, I've not actually been to one of these yet, but at, at tourist sites like the Grand Canyon or like some of the skyscrapers in some of our cities, they're now building these walkways where you step out onto these see-through walkways where you can't see anything under your feet and you walk and there's, you know, hundreds of feet below you and hard pavement below you and you can't see anything under your feet. These are very popular over the Grand Canyon, over some of these skyscrapers. I'm not sure I can do that. Because to do that, I have to trust the engineers. And I don't know the engineers. <laughs> I don't know the materials. I don't know the physics of it. I'm not sure I'm prepared to trust somebody that much to stand on something where I can't see anything supporting me. But your eyes are not closed spiritually if you know Christ. Your eyes are open and you see Yahweh, the Lord of all the earth. You see the sovereign one who directs all things according to his will. You see the one who has provided atonement for your sins. You see his promises in his word. You don't see them with your physical eyes. You can't touch them with your hands. But because he has opened your spiritual eyes to see them, you know that they're true. You know that this God is true to his word. He is faithful. He is reliable. And you can step out even when you don't see what's going to support you in your first step or your second step or your fifth step or your tenth step. We don't have blind faith. We may be blind physically to where we're going, but we're not blind spiritually. The Lord will provide. That's one of his great names in the Old Testament. Yahweh, Yireh. The Lord will provide. We move forward based on promises, not based upon what we can see, not based on our resources, not based on our abilities. We step forward to where God is calling us based on his promises and his faithfulness to those promises. Probably the biggest step of faith I remember taking in my life was back when I graduated from college. I was a relatively new believer, but I sensed a call to ministry. And I didn't have a dime to my name. Didn't, didn't have anything in my bank account. Didn't know how I was going to pay for my apartment. Didn't know how I was going to pay for my tuition. I had just gotten married. Didn't, neither one of us had jobs. But my wife and I, we packed up our 1976 Ford Pinto with everything that we owned, which tells you how little we owned, because you can't fit anything in a 1976 Ford Pinto. And if some of you might remember, those 76 Ford Pintos, those are the ones that, it, that blew up if you hit them from behind. Uh, so it took a lot of faith just to drive the Ford Pinto, let alone put all our earthly belongings into it. 
And we drove to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania and set up, got ready to start classes to go to seminary. Didn't have a job. We lived off our wedding money for two months until we could find some part-time work to start to pay some bills and start to provide. But that's the thing that comes to mind when I think of one place where I stepped out and I had no idea what was going to be there when I stepped down, where, what was going to support me. But I knew the Lord and I knew his call upon my life and I trusted that he would provide. Now, some people would say that was very foolish. Why didn't you sit down with your Excel file and work out all the, the figures and get your budget all set and, you know, and make sure you had a job before you moved? And in some cases, that's what the Lord would have us do. It's not really about that. The question is where you put your trust. Sometimes you do know a lot more about where you're stepping before you step, but sometimes the Lord requires you to really step out in faith. And that's true for congregations, too. Congregations can become maintenance churches just by saying that we're never going to risk. We're never going to, we're never going to take a step before we know exactly what's going to happen when we step there. We need to live by faith. We need to prepare our hearts and set our focus on the one who goes before us. The Ark of the Covenant represented Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the one who kept the law of God perfectly. Jesus Christ is the one who shed his blood. He was the sacrifice who shed his blood so that our sins could be atoned for. The Ark of the Covenant pointed to Jesus Christ. What God was saying to the Israelites is that one day I'm going to send one who will keep the law perfectly and atone for your sins. Keep your focus on him. Follow him wherever he goes. He is faithful. It's interesting, the Jordan River, traditionally through the history of the church, has become a metaphor for death, actually, interestingly, when you think about big obstacles between where we are and where God's calling us to be. Death is the biggest one. Death is the one that none of us can get around in and of ourselves. But the Jordan River is the, the entryway. Once our Ark of the Covenant, Jesus Christ, has opened the way through the Jordan River, that metaphorical Jordan River of death, once that way is open, nobody can stop us. We walk into our eternal inheritance. The promised land has always been an image of eternal life with God in perfection. That has been gained for us by Christ. That whole Exodus journey, being delivered from slavery, bondage and slavery in Egypt, represents where we were. We were enslaved to our sins. We were enslaved to the world. We were in darkness. We were without hope. We were despairing. And God sent a deliverer. And by mighty acts, he brought them out of slavery into the wilderness. And that's what the scripture always uses as a metaphor for our life now. We live in the wilderness. It's hard. It's barren. We struggle, we suffer, many obstacles in life. Prepare your heart, set your focus on the Lord, and follow where he leads through the wilderness. And the great obstacle is that death at the end, but we serve the one who has the keys to death and hell. And he has opened the way for those who put their faith in him. John chapter 5, verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, Jesus says, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Literally, you could translate that. You have crossed over 
from death to life because he has provided the way. Where are you this morning? Are you in slavery to your sin, to darkness without hope? Jesus Christ is the way. Put your focus on him. Are you in the wilderness? Are you a believer? You've been redeemed from a life of slavery. You've had your eyes opened, your ears opened. You're walking by faith, but you're struggling. You see obstacles you can't get past. The message is the same to you. Keep your eyes on Christ and follow him where he leads. Some of you are facing the possibility of death. We're all facing it if we just be honest with ourselves. But death, even the greatest obstacle in life, have no fear. He goes with you. He goes, he's already gone before you. He's already opened the way. And eternal life is yours by grace as a gift for those who put their faith in him. Let's pray. Father, the journey we're on is a difficult one. And we've already talked this morning about how weak and unable we are. Father, we need your grace. We need your forgiveness. We don't deserve anything from you, let alone your presence and your favor and your love and your kingdom forever. Lord, I pray that whatever lies before us, whatever individual callings we have, whatever you've called this congregation to do, I pray, Lord, that you would help us to prepare our hearts through confession and prayer and worship, that you would help us to set our focus upon the Lord Jesus Christ so that we might know which way we might go. And Lord, I pray that you would open the door to whatever good thing you're calling us to. Help us to have the faith, the gift of faith that comes from you to step through boldly, trusting in the one whom we see by faith. We pray in Christ's name, amen.